If you will, open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We finally made it out of John chapter 1. So John chapter 2 this morning. As the life and ministry of our Lord moves into full speed. We begin His public ministries with one of those well-accounted and well-known acts of His life here on earth. Let's pray before we begin, though. Father, again, our heart desires to know You. It's to know You through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reveals You to us. We pray, Father, this morning that You would silence our hearts and our minds that we would put aside worldly cares, that You would free us from distraction, that we would focus wholly upon Him, that we would see Him, that we would hear Him, that we would follow Him and love Him in faith, with full assurance and conviction that all that He said about Himself is true. We love You. We pray that You would do this again by Your Spirit's power for Your own sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water so that they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw out now. Take, uh, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. There is always much demanded and much asked from those who have much to give. Sometimes those requests are reasonable to come to someone who has the ability to do one thing or another and it's in line and it's appropriate with their objectives or their desires or the situation. And it's an appropriate request. You know, at other times... Such demands are completely out of line. They're not in keeping with the spirit of the moment or the objective or the desires of the one who has the ability. 
and the request is wholly inappropriate. And such is the case with Jesus here. He is one who has much to offer and much to give and much to do. And yet, we find that in his mind, he differs in thinking about it as did his mother in opposition to her or in distinction from her. And so in John chapter 2, we have the first of Jesus' public miracles. Now, we could argue that everything he has done in chapter 1 thus far, and even his coming to earth is nothing short of miraculous. It is a miracle. But here in John chapter 2, Jesus steps out onto the public stage in the eye of the public and is working open miracles for people to watch and to scrutinize. But one thing is clear that Jesus is demonstrating that He and His ministry and His abilities are not of this world. They're completely contrary to this world. Scholars refer to this particular portion of the Gospel of John as the book of signs. And each of these signs has with it a message that shows Jesus' distinction and His ministry's distinction apart from what the world views as appropriate and needful. Jesus will go on to demonstrate that everything about the people around Him and their understanding and the world's demands upon Him are part of the old order. They're part of fallen humanity at times, if you will. And yet everything that Jesus does is tinged and has newness coursing through it at every level. Jesus is the King of the world and He has come to do new things. To bring newness to the, to the world and new life to the world. Consider this in chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 we have an account of new wine. In chapter 2 verses 13 through 22 we have an account of new worship. In chapter 3 we have a new birth. In chapter 4 verses 7 through 38 we find that there is new water. Through the ministry of Jesus, all things have become new. And yet here at the outset in this first public miracle, we have two clarifications <coughs> excuse me, that need to be made in order to understand Jesus and to understand his ministry. Number one, there is a clarification of separation. A clarification that separates Jesus from carnal or worldly understanding. As John opens this section of his gospel, we understand that while it represents a new phase of earthly ministry for Jesus the Messiah, it is not completely separated or divorced from what had come previously. Notice how the text opens this morning on the third day. The third day from what? The third day from what had transpired immediately before it in chapter 1. And so this is not new in the sense that Jesus has shifted gears and what he had done before in the calling of his disciples, which was in itself miraculous, demonstrating his character, his attributes. Rather, it is tied to that and is a further 
revealing of the magnificent and glorious Lamb of God, Jesus is showing that He is Messiah, or rather, that the Messiah is Jesus. By His works, by His miracles. He is the sum of God's promises, and He will demonstrate that little by little as He works these public miracles. He's still being glorified as the Lamb in this passage. He has not ceased being the Lamb of God that John the Baptist had cried out to us so many times, Behold the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's not as if Jesus has left that part of His ministry behind as He works these miracles. Rather, He is substantiating John the Baptist's claims by further working miracles that prove that He is the undeniable and unstoppable Messiah, the promised One of God, come to deliver us from our sins. And so we have this marriage of these two texts, these two bodies, these two uh, broad events, if you will, what John the Baptist had interacted with Jesus in, in chapter 1, in the calling of the disciples, and now here at the wedding of Cana. Some would say that, in total, that there is a a reflection here of the seventh day of creation. It is seven days from when Jesus first encounters John the Baptist in John chapter 1, by some reckoning. And so, some scholars have seen that this is the seventh day that Jesus chooses to open His public ministry that would demonstrate completion like the seventh day in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where there is newness and completeness and rest for us in Him as the final word from God. Well, that may be debatable as to whether or not that was John's intention and including that uh, time frame of seven days. But it certainly fits within the broader framework, doesn't it? That, that Jesus is a new kind of Savior. He has come to do a new kind of thing that the world has never seen before. It also makes sense in the immediate context of the first half of chapter 2 that Jesus begins to separate Himself from a lot of this. Confusion. You know, Jesus is beginning to gather a crowd. Think about small towns that you have been in at some point in your life. And one of the beauties of living in a small community is that everybody, what? Knows everybody. That could be good or bad, depending. But, but there's one thing for sure. When Jesus comes into a small town... And he says to a notable man in that town, yeah, before you ever came to me, I saw you sleeping under the tree. Word like that would tend to spread. And expectations about Jesus would begin to grow. And people would begin to think about him in their own preconceived ways. And so Jesus is separating himself now in chapter 2 away from some of that. Yes, he is divine completion. Yes, he is all of that. But he is not in the way that they expected him to be. Brother, he's come to make all things new. To defy human thought and human imagination. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read this, the Apostle Paul writing, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a what kind of creature? 
new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so the stage is set that that man's preconceived ideas about Jesus, even from chapter 1, as as perfect as he, he is and as excited as they are, there needs to be some clarity brought. And so the stage that Jesus chooses to do this upon to separate himself from misconception and to glorify the completeness and newness of his ministry is a wedding. You think about it, a wedding. Even a wedding is a new beginning, isn't it? The joining of two lives into one. You no longer, you may walk in as two people, but you're leaving as one. You're you're leaving as one new flesh, one new identity in one another. And so Jesus uses this wedding, a new beginning in and of itself, to demonstrate the new beginning, the ultimate new beginning that is found in Him. And so here Jesus chooses to open his public ministry at a wedding. I know Jesus was a perfect preacher, the only perfect preacher who ever lived, because no other preacher would choose to start his ministry at a wedding. Those are stressful. And yet here is Jesus. He says, I'm going to demonstrate all that I need to at a wedding as I open my ministry. Perhaps we look forward to John's further writing down the road when he writes about another wedding in Revelation chapter 19. The marriage of Christ and His bride, the church. At the end of time, it will be another wedding, the wedding supper of the Lamb that brings to consummation all things that Christ has done, that God has been doing in history. And so Jesus, in a way, here is opening and closing in John's thinking with a wedding. The tension is created here in chapter 2, verse 1 this way. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. There's the tension. Not knocking mothers at weddings. But Jesus' mother is there. And as Jesus' mother, um, she has certain ideas about her son. She's most comfortable, perhaps, of all other human beings around him. And has no problems with making requests or demands upon his abilities. And so here's Mary. She's never named in John's Gospel, but we are told that it is his mother, and we know that to be her. Jesus' disciples are also invited guests at this most happy of celebrations. Now I want you to remember that weddings in Jewish custom often lasted as long as seven days. Seven days of celebrating. And so here you have the stage set. A glorious wedding. An understanding mother who knows there's something different about her son and has no problems making demands upon that. They're at the wedding of a friend or a close family member, no doubt, for whom they have great affection, both Jesus and His mother. And yet, unbeknownst to everyone there, Jesus, who has just been proclaimed as Messiah, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. This is something they can't quite yet comprehend. 
He's come to bring newness, not to a wedding, not by giving them more wine, but by redeeming every person there and every one of His chosen elect from the clutches of sin. That's what He's really here to do. That's what He's really here to teach people about. And yet they miss it. Over-familiarity, they say, breeds contempt. I certainly don't think his mother has contempt for Jesus. But perhaps it's her familiarity with him, her comfortable, relaxed demeanor around him that it causes her to escalate this into a potential crisis, something that Jesus did not come to do. He did not come to be everyone's personal miracle worker. And yet Mary almost seems to think that, well, if Jesus is around, we'll just have him fix everything. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for a greater purpose of salvation and newness. I want you to look in verse 3 with me. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's it. The wine is gone. A, A fundamental staple at a Jewish wedding. A cause for real societal embarrassment and shame. In fact, there are cases recorded, believe it or not, for those of you who may or be thinking about it at some point, planning a wedding. It was the responsibility of the groom to provide a, a proper social backdrop for his new bride. And to provide all the wine and all that would be necessary for merriment and celebrating for, again, remember, seven long days. There are cases we read in Jewish history that would allow for the family of the bride to actually sue and seek monetary compensation for the embarrassment for something like running out of wine. This groom is in trouble. This groom didn't just make some minor faux pas at a wedding. This groom created serious societal embarrassment by not ordering enough wine. So much so that his bride's family could potentially have sued him and pursued legal actions against him. And so the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. In Mary's mind, this is a major earthly societal problem. Jesus needs to do something about it to redeem his friend or his relative out of a very embarrassing situation. Well, we have to credit Mary enough to say that at least she knew who to go to. She understands there's nobody else in the room that's going to fix this. And so she asked Jesus to do something about it, as if that's his calling in life. Now, the wine referred to here was not merely juice. As in verse 10, the head waiter refers to the drunkenness that can come from drinking wine for seven days. Now, that doesn't happen immediately. It's a, you don't just make wine. It's not something, you know, it's not soda stream where you pop in your fla- favorite flavored pod with water and, you know, you have, Coke or whatever. 
It's not that. It's a process that takes time of fermentation. And in biblical times, the process of getting drunk took longer because it was not at the same alcoholic content, according to scholars, that we see commonly in our day and age. And so while it was fermented, it was also diluted more than what we think of when we think of wine in modern times. In Jesus' time, the water sources up really until modern times, water sources were unreliable and were the significant cause of the spread of disease and plague because water was unclean. And so it would mean that there need to be a diluted alcoholic content to the water in order to kill the organisms that would cause those problems. So you had to drink more to create the state of drunkenness that the head waiter refers to. Alcoholic drinks, as we think of them today, would be considered strong drink according to Scripture that would be more looked down upon in this culture because they had the ability to intoxicate very quickly and more easily. And so there's a factor of time involved here that Jesus' mother is making upon him. She says, look, you've got to fix this and you've got to fix this now. Something that takes months to accomplish you need to just go out and do it jesus you you need to go out and make good wine good fermented wine that 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 these people can drink and this again adds to the drama of the scene because time now becomes a factor it doesn't just happen overnight and time Enough for these guests to continue drinking in their merriment and not to become aware of what has transpired. So this is the crisis moment. This is the tension that's been created. So Mary does what she knows to do. She summons Jesus to the witness stand. She turns to her firstborn. By the way, many scholars believe that Mary is by this time a widow. Jesus is roughly 30 years of age. Not uncommon for men like Joseph who worked hard in hard trades like a stonemason or a carpenter as he is called in the Bible. To work hard and to live hard and to die young. That was common. The life expectancy was not long like it is in our day, in Jesus' day. And so Mary has come to depend greatly on her firstborn son. No doubt Jesus has done things for her in her life. He maintains a relationship with her up to this point that is tight and close in nature. And so she turns to her son, whom she knows to be the promised Messiah, and says what any other mother would say. If you knew that was true about your child, what would you say? Son, fix it. Do something about it. You alone possess the power over time, over nature, over all of these things you need to do something about. Now again, credit Mary. (coughs) She at least knows this much. As do the four men who have followed Jesus to this wedding from chapter 1. She believes, she knows, and she's willing to stake the reputation of not only Jesus, but the groom on it. And in her mind, that's almost a greater thinking it would appear she is concerned for the reputation of the one who would be looked down upon if they ran out of wine 
Now what occurs next is what needs special attention here. For while we applaud Mary, we must also understand that she is inadvertently, even out of a loving and a good heart, crossing lines that cannot be crossed. It must also be said that while the these lines must not be crossed, that Jesus is in no way cross with His mother because she crosses them. She doesn't fully understand. She has a good heart. And He handles a very awkward situation, a very tense situation in the best way possible as we would expect our Lord to do. He has to rebuke His mother's misunderstanding. I'm not here to be a winemaker. I'm not here to solve your temporary problems. I am not here to scratch your, the itch of your felt need, Mom. Now, how do you say that to your mother? That's, that's awkward. All of us can appreciate how awkward that might be having to say, Mom, I know we're at a wedding. I know it's crowded. I know it's potentially very embarrassing and very volatile. But Mom, this isn't what I'm here for. Stop it. How would you have handled that situation? It's not easy. It's a difficult situation. He has to correct her understanding, but he also needs to keep the law as a perfect law keeper in honoring his mother. So he's in between the rock and a hard place. He wants to honor his mom, yet he needs to correct her misunderstanding of what he is here for. And so he does. Notice the text. He says in verse 4, Woman, and we might hear that and say, Whoa, that's disrespectful. How many of you ever referred to your mom as woman? Or by her first name? Or, uh, you know, if you normally call her mom or mommy and you all of a sudden say mother, uh, that kind of turns the heat up, doesn't it? Things get really, really tense at that point. And yet, Jesus' use of the word woman is not disrespectful as it comes across in the English. The Greek term that Jesus uses here that's recorded in Scripture is, is actually one of endearment. It's not disrespectful or inappropriate at all or even unexpected. It, it's the same expression I mentioned a few weeks ago that Jesus uses in chapter 19 and verse 26 at the cross when he says to John, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Why? Because Jesus, in compassion for his mom, doesn't say, Oh, mommy, behold your son. To pierce her soul further, to hurt her further, as she watches her son murdered. Rather, he uses the term, a respectful term, woman, dear woman. Please consider. It sets the stage for a more sober issue than a wine shortage. In the response, the question is the answer. Notice what he says. What does that have to do with us? In other words, Jesus cuts off the discussion about wine. And he redirects her focus somewhere else. And the point is that I'm not here to deal with the world's temporary problems, although he does at times. I have a greater mission. A divide now has come. 
Jesus has to respectfully, as he does, in an honorific way, as he does, lay out for his mother that the time has come for her to quit looking at him in a wrong way. He is here for something bigger, something different than familial relationships that she had become accustomed to with him that is natural and right between all mothers and their sons. She knew who she, he was, but she failed to grasp the implications of that. And so in this moment, Jesus wants to separate himself from his own mother's wrongly conceived ideas about him and clarify there needs to be a healthy separation for the sake of his mission. No longer is he a son in the traditional sense of their relationship. And so he says, what does wine have to do with what he is really here for? Mom, please remember what I'm here for. Why is she asking him to concern himself with something that is so, let's just say, worldly, of this world, of a temporary nature, a a momentary blip in life? He isn't being rude, but he is drawing lines. He cannot be expected to be imposed upon, as important people often are, for anything that is outside of his Father's own will and mission for him. This is how driven Jesus is. He is willing to sever and separate normal, enjoyable, God-given relationship for the sake of your soul. And he will not be distracted from the purpose of for which he had been sent to seek and to save sinners. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not listen to his words, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I know that you mothers in here hear that and you begin to recoil a little bit. How hard is that to hear? Now, hey, at least I didn't preach this on Mother's Day. I know some of you said, why did you have Proverbs 7 read for the Scripture reading on Mother's Day? Yeah, for contrast to Proverbs 31. But at least I didn't preach this where the son is separated from the mother, right? Jesus doesn't mean that hate in the sense that we think of hate. Jesus says, listen, your love for me ought to make your love for earthly relationships look like hate. That's how great the love should be for me. Jesus doesn't hate Mary. He loves Mary. But what he loves Mary for is this. He wants to love her to her own understanding of the gospel. Not allowing her to live in confusion. Not allowing her to miss the point. Jesus wants to sober her thinking, narrow her thinking for her own good. Not to allow her to drift in rank sentimentality. So He calls her to clarity through separation. What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with anything? Mission has to be priority for Jesus, and it is. 
to the point that he has to set some boundaries and separation from his own mom. There has to be a separation from what is expected of a normal mother-son relationship in order for him to do what he's been sent to do. What a powerful determination of God's or power, powerful example of God's determination to save us. We all need to see the powerful example that this is, that Jesus would risk even the most dearest of relationships on earth for us. He says to her, My hour has not yet come, a phrase Jesus will use repeatedly that refers to His own death. In John chapter 7, verse 30, he'll say this, So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for him to die. Chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul has been become troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven said, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The hour of his own death. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so Jesus is saying to His mother, this has nothing to do with my hour. My hour of death, the real reason I've come, has nothing to do with weddings and customs and embarrassment and wine and you. I'm here to die. But that time's not yet here. But it is coming and you need to understand that. Now, John gives us somewhat of an interlude that's rather lengthy, but it's not unimportant. Undeterred and yet respectful of her son, and I believe based on faith, Mary now turns and looks at the servant. She just received the best rebuke possible given the circumstances. She turns and she looks at the servant. She says, now, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She still believes Jesus is who He is. She knows He is Messiah. And she knows that He is not unconcerned with the needs of man, even though He has just enumerated that as not His primary concern. And so she says, whatever He says to you to do, you do it. Verse 5. Several things I think are clear in Mary's statement. Number one, she still believes that the only power to change the situation comes through God. Man cannot do this. She is unwavering in her faith about that. Even if she needs to adapt her approach. The fundamental truth is the same. Only God can do something about this situation. And so she gives an order that coincides with that shift. I'm not backing off of the truth that I know who can fix this and who alone can fix it. But I'm going to just kind of back off a little. And let you guys tell him what you need. She submits to the will and mission of Jesus. In other words, she doesn't lay out, Jesus, this is what you need to do. Jesus, go tell him this. Jesus, go do this. She says, okay, I'm leaving it in his hands. Whatever he chooses to do now, you do it. It's up to him. 
So she had already determined the plan in her first attempt. Now she is content to resign herself to Jesus' plan. She had a plan. Now she submits it to Jesus' plan. And she says, whatever. Whatever that is. Whatever it is. Listen to Him. You know, Jesus could have very easily looked at those servants and said, hey guys, let's call it a night. Go home. We're done here. He could have said what He does end up saying. Jesus could have done whatever He pleased, but the point is, Mary leaves the outcome to Him because He has clarified for her, I'm on a different mission. She submits to that and says, okay then, you, d- you handle it. And here we have a good moment of clarity as it relates to Jesus' miracles. Now hear me, clearly. The miracles that Jesus did, and He certainly did them. And as the old timers would say, and how. How He did them. But they were not just random acts of power that He would throw out there. Nor nor were they opportunities for gathering a following of people uh, whose only purpose was to fulfill their curiosities and their novelties and their own perceived needs. No, Jesus did the miracles, but He always did them with purpose. I think we're faulty in our understanding. We can read the Gospels. We can read Acts even. The Acts of the Apostles. And we can kind of get the impression that Jesus healed everybody. But He didn't. We we can come up with the wrong-headed notion that every time Jesus encountered an earthly problem, He fixed it. We could come up with the the wrong notion that every storm that ever popped up in 33 and a half years, Jesus stilled it. No. But Jesus did choose at times to do very specific things to accomplish His mission. To accomplish His purpose. And so here in the last half of this story, we have... Not only a clarification of separation away from wrong thinking about his ministry, but a clarification for right thinking about his ministry. And that was that he would be glorified. And here we find these truths to be present and evident. And beginning in about verse 6, Jesus now seizes the moment again, but not in the way Mary would have necessarily had him do it, but in a way he wanted to do it. And he points to the fullness and the newness, which is what he's about. New life. D.A. Carson points out that Mary's request was in the mundane for new wine. It's just something that needed to happen as a matter of course. But Jesus is going to enforce his ideal, which was to tie the idea of wine in a present mundane way to a more glorified or biblical way. Now, again, Jesus wastes nothing and there's nothing accidental in His ministry. Jesus understands this as well, that there is a certain understanding of the Old Testament that is ingrained into these people. And they had read and they had learned throughout the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, He would usher in a new age and a new era of new wine. 
that would become plentiful. Consider Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 12. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. They will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil. When Messiah comes, you'll see this. And over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. Life and newness in unending supply. Hosea chapter 14, verse 7. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Speaking of the coming of Messiah. Joel chapter 3, verse 18. And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to the valley of Shittim. was Jesus stands and he's confronted with empty vats that should hold wine. And he faces an impossible situation in which you don't just manufacture wine by filling barrels with something and opening a package and pouring it in and stirring it together. That's not how it works. As Jesus stands there before these empty pots, He is setting them up to watch the very fulfillment of what the Old Testament had said would be one of the signs that the Messiah was there. He's pointing to Himself. He is going to fill, as we know, these pots with new wine. uh, Wine that has been created instantly. Wine that has been created perfectly. Wine that was suitable to the need of the hour. Just as the Old Testament talks about, and who else can do that? No one but God. The Old Testament had been talking about this for centuries. And now he's going to show them that that time has come. He's preparing them to see the very fulfillment of prophecy, not just a miracle. So, just as it will be on that day, Jesus orders these massive pots to be filled to the fullest, up to the brim. And again, these are not little pots. These are not wine bottles. These are massive stone containers that, that uh, think of it in our day, as like a 55-gallon drum. They're massive. And he's, they, are, they are given there for the washing of utensils and hands. These are not actually even wine pots. Thought that what they were created for, they were the, the, the text tells us they are for ceremonial cleansing. The custom of purification, washing of hands before a meal, washing of dirty utensils. Uh, a lot, 20, 30 gallons, massive, big containers. And Jesus says, now I'm going to do something else. I'm going to take that which is profane and common and I'm going to consecrate it and make it useful. It's what he does with sinners, isn't it? He takes the most filthy, the vile, the wretched, the lowest of the low, and he makes us fit for the Father's kingdom. 
He takes these vats and he says, fill them with water. I'll use them. And so he does. <coughs> Up to the very brim with water. And he transforms that water into a substance used for celebration. That celebration, that wine, is immediately used by the bridegroom and the guest. But we know from the text of Scripture that ultimately that wine, that drinking of the cup, will be performed with the bridegroom, not merely for a bridegroom. And forever, without end, we, with great joy in all of its fullness, with new life, forever, eternal life, we will drink with the Messiah. Jesus turns water into wine as no one else could do in order to foreshadow and foretell about a salvation in a time that no one can usher in except Him. So as the miracle continues to unfold, Jesus says, fill the water pots with water, verse 7, so they filled them to the brim. And He said to them, draw out some of the water now. Take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him, and when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Now listen, you serve the good stuff first. And then after the people have drunk for, you know, six or seven days and they're a little numb to the quality of the wine, then you serve the, you know, the cheap stuff. You went in reverse order. What are you thinking? Imagine the bridegroom's astonishment. I thought we were out. Where does this come from? How does this happen? Well, verse 11 tells us this is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Hey, bridegroom, the wine really wasn't about you. And it's really not about your wedding. It's about glorifying the only one who could do this, and that is the Messiah. Jesus himself. It's on Jesus. Remember, Mary leaves it as she exits the scene in this particular portion of Scripture. She says, whatever he tells you, do it. In other words, I'm out. Whatever he says, whatever his purposes are, that's what it's about. Well, verse 11 tells us what it's about. Jesus being glorified. You see, when Mary got out of the way, he could be glorified. But as long as Mary's in the way, she is interrupting things in such a fashion that it's all about an earthly or human level. But when she submits and resigns herself to his purposes for his glory, Jesus does that. He brings glory to himself. You know, the words of Hebrews should come to mind. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Christ is better. Christ is superior. Christ is 
all and in all. Christ, Christ, Christ. He is the glorified superior one. Jesus and His kingdom is better. Better than weddings. Better than the births of babies. Better than anything we could plan for our lives. Christ is superior. And His mission cannot be improved upon. What He has come to do is the ultimate. Jesus shows us that here. With the coming of the Lamb has dawned the age of newness and perfection. Though infantile at this point, it hasn't fully expanded and we don't fully see it yet. Yet we see its birth here in chapter 2. And it only grows and it only expands someday so that you and I, could partake of its fruit by faith. This, John says, is the beginning of many signs. Many signs which he would do. This beginning of his signs. And John writes that now, but then when John gets to the end of his gospel, remember what he says. So many things Jesus did that I suppose the world could not contain all of the volumes where they all written down. That's a lot. John saw them all. And just think about that. We actually talked about this on vacation a couple of weeks ago. As we stood on the beach, looked out at the ocean, I said, there's something that, you know, I think it's healthy for the soul to look at something so massive and large and say, I'm nothing. And, and to, to recite the old hymn, the love of God, you know, and where the inks with ocean filled, and where the sky of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God abroad would drain the oceans dry. And I thought about what John said. That if we were to have written down all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said in three and a half short years of public ministry. And we, we took it to a printer and we had them bound in volumes. They would literally overfill the earth. And you look out at a big ocean and you go, that's a lot of books. That's a lot of truth. And yet here the first one it's the beginning of the miracles that jesus did in order to point to the greatest miracle that he would ultimately accomplish on a rugged cross where it wasn't wine being spilled out but his own blood for our salvation So that he could say, not only is the wedding now concluded, but my mission is concluded. It is finished. And I didn't atone for embarrassment, I atone for sin. No wonder he needed to separate from lesser, ill-informed, Ideas. Something bigger was at stake. And he fulfilled that as perfectly as he did creating new wine. Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking you if you know about Jesus. Mary knew about Jesus. 
Do you know him? Do you know that his life and his death and his resurrection are for you? If you will but believe. Do you believe as the disciples did? Because obviously they believed. They kept following. We're told they believed. Imperfect faith, yes, but faith nonetheless. Oh, that we would come to know and to savor and to love and to trust Jesus as He is not what we think about Him. May He help us to do that. Let's bow our heads as we close this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation for you, May I say to you, today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed anything. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. And it will be far worse for us on that day. It will be worse than the embarrassment that this bridegroom would have experienced for miscalculating it'll be eternal punishment but if we turn to christ if we believe in the lord jesus christ the bible tells us you will be saved who he is what he accomplished do you believe that do you believe that your sins made that necessary Do you repent of your sins? Do you say, I understand my sin has placed me in wrong standing before God? I need a Savior. And only Christ can save. Just like only Christ could do something about that lack of wine at that wedding. Only Christ can save me. I I believe that. And I turn from my sin and I turn to Christ. Trusting Him fully to do what He promised He would do to any who would repent of their sins and come to Him in faith, believing that He saves. If you've never trusted Christ, that's all there is. It's not your works added to it. It's not your church membership added to it. It's Christ alone. And His work for you. Would you trust Him this morning? Right where you are. Would you cry out to the Lord. And confess your need for a Savior. And simply receive by faith. What Christ has done for you. Lord. We know this is the final end. For which you did all that you did do. To seek and save sinners. All of these signs, all of these miracles, all of these things point us to the reality that You alone are God. That You alone can atone for our sins, pay for our sins, because You were perfect, having no sin of Your own. You came and died in our place. You did something far greater than turning the water into wine. You make sinners accepted in the sight of the Father. 
clothed in complete righteousness apart from ourselves. So Holy Spirit, I pray that You would now convince men and women, boys and girls of this truth and that there would be a room full of people who leave this morning having trusted You, still trusting You, and determined to go out and to live with the confidence that comes from knowing that our sins have been forgiven. We love You. We pray these things all in Jesus' precious name.